Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. So before we start, we're going to pull back a little bit and tell you a bit about our editorial process here. We meet usually on Wednesday to talk about the topic. We were thinking, hey, maybe we could talk about something like Afghanistan. But then, of course, North Korea, in a very literal sense, became the only thing people really care or talk about. Then this morning, as we were getting ready to really sit down and record, we found out that North Korea is threatening to fire missiles within range of Guam, which houses many thousands of U.S. troops, all of which is to say we're talking North Korea again and may talk it again and again and again. In an angry statement, the North vowed the U.S. will pay by a thousandfold. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. I think Americans should sleep well at night. I have no concerns about uh, this particular uh, rhetoric. So there's a lot to unpack there. The first was North Korea threatening the U.S. as it's done before, and it loved to use the kind of apocalyptic Game of Thrones-esque rhetoric, which changed here as suddenly we are too. That second was Donald Trump using this rhetoric we've never heard from an American president really since Harry Truman was talking about the literal atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then the third was our favorite charismatic secretary of state trying to say, hey, ignore what my boss just said. Chill out. We're not going to war. And we should start by saying that we will try not to be alarmist. There's a lot of talk on Twitter and elsewhere of get under the bomb shelter. We're about to go to war. We're not. That said, there is something very scary. Predictability matters. Predictability matters in foreign policy. Predictability matters, especially in national security. And predictability has been kind of the frame for North Korea for a long time. North Korea says something scary. They don't actually do it. They get some concessions. Years pass, they do it again, rinse, repeat. And the question now I think that's worth really discussing is what happens if predictability falls apart because one leader is not predictable? And that leader isn't the North Korean leader, and it is the American one. Yeah, it's important to bear in mind that if there's one defining element of Donald Trump's foreign policy, both in actual action and in rhetoric, it is unpredictability. In an April 2016 foreign policy address, which is sort of the most expansive time that he's given his own views, the the now president said that we need to be less predictable, that being predictable is what's cost the United States. We send in troops always in response to some crisis and so on and so forth. And that to him, I don't know if it's thought out on the level of a doctrine, but it really seems to be something that he's internalized. He thinks that the U.S. has suffered because other countries have been able to anticipate its moves. The problem, as Yochi just suggested, is that deterring another country from any kind of military adventurism depends on predictability. They need to be able to predict that if they do X thing, there will be Y consequence. And so they know where the lines are. And Trump, both in his own unpredictability as a person and wild rhetoric, and in various different contradictions from his own staff, has created a a disconnect between X action that North Korea could take and Y obvious American consequence. It's just... There's, there's no line there, and that makes deterrence very difficult to establish. Right. And I think it's important, too, to talk about, you know, when we talk about predictability, Trump made that statement, the fire and fury statement, reportedly with little guidance from, from the White House. Sarah Huckabee Sanders had said that they had consulted with him on, on tone, but not on the specific words. And so he was basically just kind of freewheeling it there. And... 
while that may work really well, you know, on the campaign trail, it obviously did well for him, you know, in big rallies, when we're talking about potential conflict with a nuclear adversary, maybe shooting from the hip is probably not the best way to go. And the reason- Maybe. Maybe, just putting it out there. And the reason is, you know, when we sit down like this morning, the North Korean state media issued the statement about Guam, right? And everybody sat down and went, okay, I need to look word for word. What did they say? And what did they not say? Because what they said is just as important as what they didn't say. So like Yelke said, they didn't say we're going to hit Guam with nukes. They said we're going to fire missiles 25-ish miles off the coast of Guam, right? Those distinctions matter. And the problem is that if you're North Korea and you're looking at Trump statements, the administration statements, they don't seem to be kind of all on the same page, right? So those two quotes we heard, we had Tillerson saying, you know, everyone, Americans should sleep tight. We had him saying just the other day that that we're not seeking regime change. We are not your enemy, you know, saying that to North Korea. And then you have Trump's fire and fury. So if you're North Korea sitting down trying to parse out what is the U.S. strategy, what can I get away with? What can I not? What are their red lines? What will get us into a war? It's really difficult for them to sit down and parse that out. And that is where this gets really problematic. And I think you've hit on two things there that are really important. The first, Trump improvised this. And we, we sort of shouldn't like gloss over that. This isn't something where the White House is, you know, as Jen, as you point out very correctly, said the tone had been discussed. They said that in response to reports in the New York Times and elsewhere that the page Trump was looking at as he read this was about the opioid crisis, had nothing to do with North Korea, and that he improvised that completely. So no one on his staff, not his national security advisor, not his chief of staff, not his defense secretary, Nobody knew it was coming, which I think is really important. But on the other point, I think there are people who will hear what you just said and are like, wait a minute, North Korea sits down and parses? Like, we don't think of North Korea parsing. We think of North Korea being this insane state run by this fat guy with a bad haircut. But there's something I really- I like his haircut. <laughs> what? Like, yeah. No, that's a terrible opinion. I lied. <sighs> that's Jen's hot take about <laughs> the North Korean <laughs> leader. Take. But they are rational in their own way. You know, they have never, for all their talk, they have not obliterated Seoul. They have not- fired anything in Japan. In fact, if they carried out this threat to send missiles towards Guam, those missiles would fly over Japan. That would be the first time ever that a North Korean missile has flown over Japan. None of which is to say that they're not scary, they're not horrible, they're not starving many millions of their own people. But it is to say these aren't madmen. These are people who want to stay in power. We need to be analytically clear about what the dangers are from North Korea. Right? They're, they are not, and, and very few countries, if any, ever have been, a country that wanted voluntarily to commit suicide, right? That doesn't make any sense. Whatever your objectives are, you can't accomplish them if your regime no longer exists. So number one priority for North Korea is preserving the government. And they know that the United States and South Korea could demolish them if they wanted to. So they're not going to do something obviously crazy, right? That's just a lot of people speculate about that, like them nuking Los Angeles out of the blue. That's not going to happen. What is more likely and what is scarier is that North Korea doesn't understand the signals it's getting from Washington. This is a problem uh, in international relations called misperception, right? It's the literature, the very immense academic literature that's formed around this. The, uh, the idea that states try to signal their intentions, but other countries, for a variety of reasons, both psychological and political, 
have difficulty understanding the signals they're trying to send. And that's when they're trying to be really clear with their signaling, right? right. That's and when the country is literally sitting down and parsing every syllable. Right, which the North Koreans are doing, but right. like, it doesn't seem the, as right. you just suggested, the U.S. government isn't. It's like the president said something and the rest of the government is engaging in a giant game of yes and when they're trying to agree with him and then do <laughs> something new on top of it. And this... This is what I was getting at earlier about transmission belts, right? It's it's broken, the sort of system of uh, signaling that goes from the U.S. to North Korea, or at least it's not functioning in the way that it should and it has in the past, which is what makes this crisis scarier than previous ones we've seen, even when North Korea actually committed acts of aggression, like sinking a South Korean destroyer, right? That, in, in a some sense— In 2010. Yeah. In a certain sense, that was less— less panic-inducing in the United States than what's happening right now. Yeah, they also shelled an island that same year, a South Korean island that was completely populated, and they killed civilians and, and military people. Um, and I think that's a really good instance of where, like, if we think that tensions are high right now, that was probably the worst that tensions have been since the end of the Korean War, arguably. And I would probably argue that. I am arguing that. This is me arguing that point. But even in that case, right, so you had North Korea actually taking hostile action against a U.S. ally that is protected under our nuclear umbrella. And by that, we mean South Korea doesn't have their own nuclear weapons. We have basically promised that if they are attacked um, or threatened, you know, with by a nuclear state or whatever, that we will protect them up to including using our nuclear weapons to do so. But we didn't take action, right? So the Obama administration essentially looked at the situation and said, yet this could escalate really badly. The cost of actually doing something militarily to respond could be insanely high. It could spiral out of control. And it was a really measured kind of response. And there's there's something to that, right? So there's a there's a concept in in kind of nuclear deterrence theory that's called the the stability instability paradox. So basically the kind of argument is that if a country has nuclear weapons and the chance that if you you know attack them or do something to them means that it could potentially be a full-on nuclear conflict, then the threshold for, for punishing them for taking provocative action is really, really high. So you have to cross, like they have to do something seriously, seriously provocative in order for you to be willing to risk, you know, actually going to nuclear war, which means that arguably when countries get nuclear weapons, they can actually get away with a lot more lower level shit because the threshold is so high. And so when we talk about North Korea now having nuclear weapons and what that means going forward, that's something that we might actually expect to see. Right. And, and I, I think that's vital to understanding not just this crisis, but crises in Iran and other places. The fear is— India, Pakistan. Exactly. I mean, the, the fear is if something—the country invades another neighbor, meddles in another neighbor, you, you can't really respond. And, and I think in this case, it's even scarier. People are making a lot of comparisons to the Cold War. Uh, Sebastian Gorka— everyone's favorite goateed-wearing Hungarian far-right anti-Semite was on and sort of— Also hates the Muslims. Also hates the Muslims. We'll find a group he doesn't hate, which may take another episode. But he was on TV sort of boastfully saying this is like the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is a weird thing to boast about. Why would you say that? In, of all of the things you could say, why would you compare it to the moment in history when we were closest to annihilating the human race? Right. Like, that's it's, really not a helpful comparison. And that was not, yeah, that was not a moment of, of, of triumph of, like, rational, cool thinking. And, you know, exactly as you're saying, we came close. And so it's a really weird comparison to make. But it's also weirdly optimistic comparison to make. Because unlike then, we have no direct communication with North Korea at all. 
And so during that crisis, it was terrifying. It was close as Zach accurately says to the end of humanity. One of the few times we could say that phrase and it's not hyperbolic, but we talked to the Russians. There were red line, there were red phones. We had an embassy, they had an embassy. There was a way to communicate and try to, you know, to the point Jenny made before and Zach, you made before in a different way to predict because we had communications. With North Korea, we don't. We don't talk to them at all. They have no embassy here. We have no embassy there. There's no red line. So the small risk of a stumble becomes magnified because you can't talk talk it down. You can't back away from it when you don't know who to speak to. Right. And there are lines of communication between Americans and North Koreans, um, but they're not government high-level contacts, which, you know, we do still know a lot about what goes on inside North Korea because there are, you know, academics and and business people and all kinds of different people who who go to North Korea. We have academics who actually meet with delegations of North Korean government officials, but they don't speak for the United States government, right? These academics may be experts. They may study this for a living, but they don't, they can't go there and speak on behalf of the U.S. government and say, this is our position. This is where we, you know, and they are not in a position, you know, to come back and say, like, I can, you know, assure you that this is what they said, because who knows what the North Koreans would say to an academic versus whether they were speaking to, you know, Rex Tillerson, probably be slightly different tonally, maybe. And that's a problem because, you know, while we do have communication in terms of, you know, being able to figure out, you know, North Korea is often portrayed as this kind of black box. And in many ways it is, but we do actually know a lot about, you know, as much as we can, we know a lot about North Korea. So they have a nuclear doctrine. They have it laid out, spelled out. So, you know, when we're trying to figure out what would they actually do with nuclear weapons, well, they've told us. Now, you get into the kind of security dilemma problem where it's, you know, do we believe what they said on paper or is this, are they bluffing? Is this a lie? Would they actually do this in in a crisis? How would they actually behave? And that's where the kind of confusion can, can kind of come up. It, it's also, it's even worse than that to a certain extent because if there's no direct communication at high levels and things are, information is being transmitted through out-of-government people, you're essentially getting the information filtered through a variety of different sources, right? You're not getting source-to-source analyzable information. Essentially, you're conducting nuclear diplomacy through a game of telephone, which I think is very bad. Yeah, and I think it's... Trump loves to believe and to argue that he's this master dealmaker and, like, put him in the same room with someone and and he'll strike a deal. There's a report in the New York Times that had this kind of throwaway line that I found totally terrifying that Trump has told his his staff he understands Kim Jong-un better than they do which is kind of a remarkable statement given that he is new to all of this and has never met Kim Jong-un. But the reason I flag it is, again, going back a little bit to the Cold War, American presidents met with and occasionally knew on a personal level the premiers of the Soviet Union. And that could be helpful, right? Like having a personal relationship beyond the, the red phone helped. Right now, you know, Jen, I agree completely. We have some degree of understanding based on these third party or fourth party, but no American official of any seniority has ever met any North Korean official of any seniority. And there's been a chance to. Rex Tillerson was in Manila for a security conference. North Korea was there as well. There were, oftentimes you'll have American officials kind of brush by people we're not officially talking to, and then it sort of opens the door. He made a point of doing the opposite. Any situation where he might've been in the same room with a North Korean, he avoided. And that matters too, right? Like if there's no communication, no personal relationship, no understanding, Zach, to your point, predictability gets really hard. Perception gets really hard. We've been talking a lot about the things that are really scary about the situation and how we've gotten to this bad point. I also want to emphasize, though, that uh, it's not 
quite as bad as we're, we might seem to be making it out to be. So one of the things I found most interesting throughout the whole, you know, past week or so of crisis are the reports from South Korea. And what you hear from everyone who's living there is the people in South Korea are not panicked. Americans, like I'm getting emails and texts from friends who are asking me, are we all going to die? South Koreans are just going about their daily business. Their news apparently is not especially freaked out. They don't think that a war is imminent. And there's a reason for that. And Jen got at it earlier when she was talking about the 2010 crisis, right? That for South Korea was much scarier because there were actual attacks on their military and civilian, like people died. That hasn't happened yet. And there's also a lot of reasons to think that deterrence will still hold, even with all the issues about misperception that make this more dangerous than past crises have been. And the fundamental one is, is the one that I was talking about at the beginning, which is North Korea knows that if it goes too far, the consequences are the end of its regime. It can kill a lot of Americans, but it cannot defeat the United States and it cannot realistically survive a full-on war. So, so the very depressing thing right there is that Zach is giving, uh, I think accurately, what is the most optimistic situation we can have. And it's still kind of scary. Like, I, I'm, I'm so glad you raised it because a lot of the coverage, and I don't know, Jen, is something you've pointed out a lot in the newsroom too. Like, you've seen headlines that are just flatly inaccurate. Right. We try not to bash other media, but the initial headlines about the North Korean threat were, North Korea is going to nuke the U.S., except if left off the, if the U.S. invades North Korea part. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also, you know, when you talk about the the South Korean, you know, response, um, I will say part of it is because they've just lived under this threat for so long that you can only live in crippling fear for so long until you eventually just have to move on with your life and just kind of accept it. So I, I was talking to some people, um, some experts on, on South Korea and, and who've lived there, and they were like, yeah, you know, it's, we're aware of it. It's not, you know, it's not like we don't know that it's happening. It's just that, you know, it's not like we can really do much about it. Like, what can the average South Koreans, or, you know, even someone living in Guam, like, what can you as a citizen do? I heard one interview with a, a woman in Guam this morning. She was like, just hug your family more. I, like, I don't, you know, what can I do? And I think that's a really important point. But when we talk about, you know, South Korea also, you know, doesn't seem to be preparing for a massive war, neither does the U.S. in a lot of ways. So if we were to expect a full war with North Korea to be coming soon, we would be doing things like evacuating non-critical U.S. Uh, U.S. civilians from, from South Korea. So we have thousands of U.S. troops stationed at the DMZ, at the, the demilitarized zone on the border between South and North Korea. And a lot of them have their families who live in the area and things like that. And so we would be kind of seeing this kind of broader war is imminent, we need to panic. Because, and, and I think this is something that's important to go back to that, that you raised, Zach, in terms of what's What's the real fear here? What's the real potential for danger and what's not? So when I look at this situation, I'm not scared that that North Korea is going to nuke L.A. or Washington. That that seems to me, and I could be wrong, I hope I'm not, to be a, a relatively remote possibility. But I think the real concern is that what this does is that, you know, North Korea basically is able to kind of start driving a wedge between the U.S. and South Korean alliance. Um, in terms of by raising the stakes, we could potentially go to to nuclear war with North Korea now because, you know, they have nuclear weapons and they can hit it. So if they were to attack South Korea, 
would we be willing to actually follow through on our alliance pledge to defend South Korea if it meant potentially the U.S. homeland could be vulnerable to a nuclear attack? And that's where, you know, that's where this kind of strategic logic that that Kim Jong-un is kind of pursuing, uh, most experts agree that that's one of the reasons why he's kind of pushing this, because it it's trying to kind of essentially kind of change the status quo balance of power on the peninsula by trying to see if you can— Experts call it decoupling. If you can decouple the U.S. from South Korea and that alliance and kind of test it so where South Korea is not entirely sure if they can rely on the U.S. and we're already seeing part of that. So there's a professor at Dartmouth named William Wolforth who um, has written a lot about the Cold War. And he analyzes a lot of the Cold War crises like the Berlin Airlift, the Cuban Missile Crisis, as being ways of testing on the parts of both powers. The U.S. and the Soviet Union were testing how powerful they were and what the balance of strength and the understanding of the other country and the other country's strength were. And they were using these crises not just as nuclear brinksmanship to try to accomplish something, a specific objective, but to understand the limits of what their opponent would tolerate and the limits of their opponent's capabilities. And... That makes a lot of sense and resonates with what Jen was just talking about in terms of how the North Koreans are behaving. Remember, this crisis really got kicked off by North Korea testing an intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, they had one with huge, very long range that they had never shown before that kind of capability. That test really gave North Korea a new capability, a capability to strike a wide swath of the United States if their missile actually does work as advertised. So... Part of what's happening right now is the North Koreans trying to figure out just how much leverage this gives them with the United States and just how far they can go. And that's dangerous. But at the same time, it doesn't indicate a desire to preemptively start a war. And I think there's also, in theory, a test of a literal test of American technical capabilities. You know, we have a missile defense system installed on a golf course randomly in South Korea where there was a lot of anger that a golf course had to be sacrificed for this purpose of a THAAD missile defense system. And there's not a clear answer to the gigantic question of, could that shoot down a North Korean missile? And it's very possible that the U.S. has shot down in the past, has shot down other countries' satellites, has shot down other countries' missiles. It's very possible you can get to a situation where they're testing to see, can we do it? Can we do it with a shorter-range missile? Can we do it with a longer-range missile? But I think part of what is, again, what, what is very scary is that we don't necessarily know how accurate their missiles are. Right, so this missile test that just happened, you know, that Zach pointed to, that really correctly kicked this off, that was something that showed the range. It showed the missile could go up and can go far, but didn't show could it actually precisely hit something. And that's what I think is scariest about the stuff with Guam. We were talking in the newsroom right before we recorded about, holy hell, how scared should we be? And what scares me about Guam isn't they, they'll fire it, they might, maybe they won't, they've talked in the past and not done it. It isn't the flight over Japan, although that would be historic first. It's if they're firing within 25 miles of Guam, which is what they're saying they're going to do, with a missile that we don't know how precise it is, if that missile misses and lands in Guam, we're at war. And so it doesn't, we're not at a point now where we should be hiding under our desks and doing Cold War style, like t tell school kids to just, here's how, we, yeah, here's how we evacuate with an atomic bomb, hit your public school. We're not there. But a missile hitting Guam, which is possible, gets us very, very close to war. But that's exactly why I don't think they're going to do it, as, was get, as I was getting at earlier. The North Koreans have to know that their own missiles aren't as accurate as they say they are, right? Their military command isn't drinking their own Kool-Aid, as far as I can tell. 
And if that's the case, they know that there's a risk if they do some kind of provocative test, like firing missiles that are supposed to land off the coast of Guam, of actually hitting Guam. And if they make that kind of mistake, it's potentially a regime-ending mistake. Why would they take that risk, given the limited gains that would come from following through on a threat like this? And to me, it just... I mean, it's not that they might not do it. I don't claim to have psychic penetration of the North Korean leadership. That's it. Please don't ever say psychic penetration again. Look, guys, I was talking about like X-Men stuff. I don't know where your heads went to. So just to to play devil's advocate here, um, I, I do think when we talk about we don't know how accurate their missiles are, they probably do, right? Like we we don't know because there's a limit to how much we can know about their very secretly protected nuclear program. So there is the possibility, and again, we we don't know, that they're more accurate than we seem to think, that, that they are accurate, which means there could be plausibly a reason for them to want to do this, which is to show you guys don't know how accurate they are. You guys think that they're not accurate? Watch. We told you literally a specific kilometer number. Watch us hit it. Now, I don't know. That could that could be bullshit, right? We don't we don't know. But that's also a plausible alternative. Okay, but then one of two scenarios, right? One, the missiles are more accurate, in which case there is very little risk of them actually hitting Guam in the nightmare scenario that Yohi is talking about coming true. Or two, missiles are not that accurate, right? and they would be crazy to try to test them right. and match their boasts, because that would prove, A— if they missed by a wide margin in the opposite direction, that their missiles don't really work. <laughs> Just kidding. We don't, totally don't know what we're doing right. here. Or be there right. at war. Absolutely. Right. So either way, the evidence that we have strongly suggests that they would not want to follow through on a threat like this that's so provocative. One thing I'd, I'd like to just hit on briefly before we close is things to look forward to, to look ahead to, which is there will be markers potentially that this is getting more serious than Donald Trump channeling Daenerys Targaryen in, in his weird, like, bizarre golf course press conference. And Jen, you hit on one, which could be the evacuation of a non-essential U.S. military family members, uh, diplomatic family members. But there are others, which would include moving carrier strike groups, aircraft carrier groups that would be big naval power of an aircraft carrier, destroyers closer to the coast of Korea, which Bill Clinton did, incidentally. We came very close to military confrontation under the Clinton years, and he did send a carrier strike group to uh, the waters off of Korea. And so it's important for all of us to recognize that words matter, but deeds matter more. And so far, at least, the deeds do not suggest imminent military confrontation. That said, what I find, it's easy to make fun of because it's funny on some level, but it's also genuinely scary. The message that that uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis is trying to send, Mr. Charisma Rex Tillerson is trying to send, basically is ignore that old guy who's doing his own hot takes from his golf course. Like, don't listen to him, listen to us. And that's a really historically strange position that I don't think we should ever lose sight of, that the senior most members of the American government are telling other governments, ignore the United States president. Yeah, um, and I think when you talk about the the mobilization issue, I think, you know, in, in recent weeks, we've kind of heard, you know, calls for war bandied about. Um, I think Lindsey Graham channeling President Trump was, <sighs> I know, um, was, you know, saying that if there's going to be a war, we should do it over there. You know, the people will die over there instead of here. And just kind of saying, you know, yeah, the president said he'd be willing to go to war. I think, you know, and we have, I've seen, you know, people calling for, you know, oh, we could we could just do a targeted strike or, you know, we could send in like SEAL Team 6 to take out Kim Jong-un, which is like a ridiculous idea. Someone actually ever. said that. A yeah, crazy alt-right tweeter. Legitimately said that and the entire internet took him down and uh, laughed at him. But 
but when we talk about is this something that we could just do like a one-off, we're not talking about like like in Syria when Bashar al-Assad gassed his people and we did this kind of one-off cruise missile strike on an airport runway. And then it was like kind of one and done, right? Uh, don't do that again. You know, we we, we punished you for that um, and, and everything kind of just went about its business. Nobody who knows anything about this, talking about like military planners, thinks that that would be even remotely possible because North Korea has something like 50,000, you know, artillery units lined up, ready to go, deeply ensconced in bunkers. They've, they've fortified them for decades, ready to go pointed at Seoul. And so the war plan, General John Allen, um, who is, I guess, retired now, he's he's out of the military and is now, um, but, you know, he actually was recently talking about this and he was kind of explaining to civilians who don't really know this, what the war plan the U.S. war plan actually is, in in broad terms, obviously, it's not classified information. But he was talking like hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops would be mobilized. The entire Army, the entire Air Force, one-third of the Navy, and probably the entire Marine Corps, the National Guard, the Reserves. So we're talking everyone who's fighting in Afghanistan, everyone who, who's involved in the fight against ISIS. Is that something that Donald Trump is really ready to do, like right now? And that's the kind of thing that we have to talk about. It's one thing to tweet. It's one thing to make some comments. It's another thing to actually mobilize your entire country's military power to go to a devastating and bloody war on the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, I really want to hone in on the seriousness of this. I saw a Facebook status from a friend who lives in Northeast Asia, very close to North Korea, saying, I've seen all of your joke statuses about nuclear apocalypse. This isn't funny to me. And it's not, right? When we're talking about war with North Korea. This isn't something to talk lightly at. It's not something, as one influential evangelical pastor said in the United States, that God has sanctioned Trump to take North Korea out, right? That's just thoughtless rhetoric. These are millions, millions of people's lives that are at stake in this situation. And in very real terms, lots of people could die if a single mistake is made. So when we all talk cavalierly about this, or even sometimes abstractly, it severs us from the immediacy of what's happening here and why it's so important to try to get a handle on the situation and figure out a stable resolution to the Korean crisis. Right. I do think as journalists, it's absolutely great. I think it's it's vital that we're careful with what we say because, you know, especially on Twitter, I think there is a bit of gallows humor, which is understandable, right? When you're dealing with something that is terrifying— there is a kind of natural human instinct to kind of just go, well, we're all going to die and just kind of making jokes to make light of the fact as a way of kind of processing that fear and dealing with it. So I do think that's a lot of what we're seeing. But as journalists, that's really, really unhelpful because, you know, people are actually watching what we say to figure out how scared should I be? And so we've been something we've been talking about with our team and our newsroom. I understand that this is something that there's an instinct to be like, ha we're all going to die on Twitter, you know, and just oh, this is my final tweet, and, you know, uh, and there's a lot of that, but it's really, really important to emphasize that that's not where we are right now. We're not talking about a real potential nuclear, all-out nuclear war with North Korea nuking the United States. The most likely scenario would be if war were to break out, it would be Seoul and Japan that are targeted first, and, which and is I, also horrible. And I think that part of it is, in a weird way, because of the public perception of Donald Trump, He's mocked mercilessly as this buffoon. Alec Baldwin makes fun of him. He's such an easy target to laugh at. If this were a sober president saying these same things, if this were President Mike Pence saying this, or President Barack Obama saying this, or President Nikki Haley, pick the person, but using the same rhetoric, 
I think it would register as much scarier in some ways because Donald Trump, he is still a target of mockery. And it's easy to forget that this guy who sits on his golf course is also the guy who controls the American nuclear codes and controls the entire American armed forces. And so I agree completely that he's not activating them. He's not getting ready to nuke North Korea. We're not anywhere near that. But it's easy to forget sometimes, I think, that Donald Trump isn't just the target of mockery, isn't just somebody who tweets at Mitch McConnell about healthcare. He is also the commander in chief of the United States military. And that's a fearsome responsibility for a person who probably should not have it. You know your phone, wallet, and keys, and you know how they're plotting against you, always hiding somewhere, trying to make you late? Well, their sick game is finally over. Eight years ago, Tracker changed everything when they released their first tracking device, and now they've done it again with the all-new Tracker Pixel. With Tracker Pixel, you'll never worry about losing your things again. It's the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. All you have to do is place a Tracker Pixel on whatever you tend to lose, your keys, your wallet, your cat. It's small enough to fit anywhere. And then what happens is this. When you misplace an item that has a tracker pixel attached, you use your smartphone, and a 90 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. It even has powerful LED lights so you can find it in the dark. Lose your phone? Press the button on your tracker pixel, and the phone rings, even if it's on silent. You can even find your item if it's miles away, because every tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world. And trackers' 30-day money-back guarantee means you truly have nothing to lose. So here's what you do. Go to thetracker.com, enter promo code WORLDLY, and you get 20% off any order. That's thetracker.com, promo code WORLDLY for 20% off. And it's tracker without the E. So it's thetracker, T-R-A-C-K-R.com. One last time, thetracker.com, promo code WORLDLY. We have talked a lot a lot about scary things. And again, when we were talking yesterday collectively about how we could not make this morbidly, horrifyingly scary, we thought, what is something out in the world that is at least sort of funny? And we found it. And that's where we're gonna go for elsewhere. We're gonna go to France because France is having the most unusual and non-French married scandal involving a married French politician. Typically it's because they're sleeping with someone who's not their husband or wife. Here it's because somebody's being faithful to their spouse in a way that France doesn't like. We're going to hear a second of it right now. On parle pas d'emploi, on parle justement de statut. Un emploi, c'est rémunéré. L'épouse du président de la République n'a et n'aura aucune rémunération. So that is something that sounds so French. It should be. By the way, Zach and I are both sitting here doing in a really, really chain smoking French impressions <laughs> off mic, just so you guys know. <laughs> I definitely just used my pen as a long cigarette. I so wish this were being video streamed because that was fantastic. <laughs> What he's getting at is the French president, Emmanuel Macron, who had many years earlier, when he was still a high school student, seduced the married teacher in his school. He then married her. She's about 24 years older. He wants to make her a first lady, like we have here. We don't have first ladies in many other countries. There is no first lady in Israel. There's no first lady in Britain. And there's no first lady in France. This idea is really, really, really unpopular for fascinating, fascinating reasons. One thing that I, I find really interesting about this is it is simultaneously for and against Macron's campaign platform. So during the election earlier this year, he claimed he wanted, he said outright, he wanted to formalize the position of first lady. But at the same time, he campaigned heavily against one of his rivals, Francois Fillon, on the grounds that Fillon was corruptly giving favors to his wife. 
right? Using he basically put state, her on the payroll and said she was working for him, her. which is legal under the French under French law if you actually do the job and if the work is real. And she did not apparently do that. But she did not. And she did not apparently do that. So it's. That, that's what's driving a lot of the anger, right, is the sense of hypocrisy that Macron claimed he was going to clean up government and prevent this kind of family favoritism. And now he's like, actually, I want to get a huge staff for my wife, even though he said he would do that during the campaign. It's very odd in a certain sense, but it, it, it I can see right. where and it's coming. The from, first lady the position in France dynamics. has been kind of controversial going back for a while. So the previous president, Francois Hollande, um, Instead of, like, Macron having, you know, a wife that he's been with for, you know, 20 years, married for 10, he had this girlfriend. He was said that, you know, marriage was a, a bourgeoisie institution. He rejected it. Um, they had this kind of stunning breakup while he was in office. They had this really dramatic, like, rocky relationship that played out on the national stage, you know, in the Elysee Palace. So, you know, at one point, he had endorsed this candidate who happened to also be, I guess, his ex-girlfriend. And so— his other girlfriend, his current girlfriend, got mad and, like, tweeted out a bunch of stuff saying, like, how dare you do this? And, like, called him up and was, like, screaming at him on the phone in front of reporters. And a lot of people in France thought this was understandably ridiculous and and really didn't like her and kind of saw her as this, you know, this uncontrollable person who is kind of influencing the president, you know, and wanted a kind of more traditional kind of respectable, quiet, you know, kind of the model French wife who stays in the shadows and protects her husband and, and things like that. And and so now we have this kind of other flip side of that. And I think there's also an interesting sexist angle to this that you have to talk about. So the age differential here, like you said, you'll hate, she's 24, uh, Brigitte is her name, Brigitte Macron, we should say her name. She is 24 years older than Emmanuel Macron is. He's 39. So a lot of people have pointed out that if the roles were reversed, that there'd be a lot less kind of maybe concern about this if it were, you know, an older man with a much younger woman, which we've seen <laughs> before and, and France has seen before. So there is that, you know, there, there's criticism that she's like this mothering figure, that she's trying to kind of control him and, and that, she, you know, she she's getting too kind of involved and things like that. But again, you know, I think mostly goes back to the fact that he legitimately campaigned on this anti-nepotism. You know, we're not going to—he's literally about to push through a law that would ban parliamentarians from from employing their spouses and their family members. Meanwhile, he's trying to get his wife a job. He also uh, is recently—he uh, also uh, is recently—he's well, recently said he will cut the defense budget. So money for the defense of France will disappear. Money for his wife will reappear. Slate had a fascinating article, which was, flip this exactly. Macron's allies, some of them have said, the fact that he seduced a married teacher is a real sign of his virility and his assertiveness and his aggressiveness. Like these are almost exact That's quotes. creepy. It's creepy, but then flip it. This is what the Slate article did, which was fascinating. Flip it. Make it the young female Macron. Macron's now a, a woman seducing a married man, breaking up a family. That plays out differently. That's not something that boosts their career. That's this slutty, home-wrecking, adulterer. It isn't this assertive, virile man, which I think is really interesting, you know, to the point, Jen, you were hitting at. Before we, we, we taped, uh, Jillian Weinberger, a colleague of ours, very brilliant colleague of ours, is helping make this sound good, made the point that the role of French women in official France is interesting because on the, on the one hand, France tries to think of itself as this very secular, this very progressive modern state. And then as you were pointing out, Jen, at the same time, women are sexualized, 
right? Like women are sex objects, not always taken seriously for their accomplishments, for their, for their intellect. And it, right. it is I think a weird I mean, there is also like a, a clear respect for like the, the career woman who's the straightforward, like ambitious. I think the problem you get into in, in terms of the roles of women in France is that if you don't fit into one of or the other of those buckets, that's when things start to get a little uncomfortable for people. They, they understand, you know, so, so Marine Le Pen, right? She's a strong politician. She's the the far right candidate in France who lost to Macron, right? She had a relatively large support base. You know, she's a female candidate. She's powerful. She's independent. She wasn't just somebody's arm candy, right? And that was fine. And then you have, you know, the kind of other side where you can be this kind of more submissive behind the scenes. I think both of those are are equally understood in France. I think it's when you're kind of in the middle in that gray area that people don't really understand. Like, could you just pick, we don't know what you are. Could you could you just fit into this preconceived basket of what we expect women to be? And and when they don't do that, that's when things get a little crazy. I find it really fun that even in countries that tend to be perceived as doing better in terms of gender equality than the United States by Americans, the same set of sexist double standards seem to persist. And this isn't just true in Europe, it's true cross-culturally, right? Other developed countries like Japan and South Korea arguably have even more rigid gender roles and expectations for women right now, and especially professional women. It's fascinating how persistent this is, despite official policies that are supposed to combat uh, discrimination. And by fascinating, I mean exceptionally depressing. And I think it's also interesting to remember that what we think of as American norms, we think often transpose to other countries and assume if we do it, they do it too. And the office of the first lady is a really, when you think about it, it is a really strange thing. She's not an elected person. You know, had Hillary Clinton won and Bill Clinton had been the first gentleman, he would not have been an elected first gentleman. But they have large staffs. Yeah, they, they get have their large own budget. amounts of money. They, they spend on whatever initiatives they have. Yeah, Melania, they get their own budget. Yeah, right. They have their own budget. Melania Trump uh, gloriously is allegedly trying to focus on cyberbullying, which, of course, somehow seems to exempt her husband. But, yeah, Michelle Obama did really good things. She focused on helping improve the food children ate. Laura Bush focused on literacy, right? Like, they typically do nice things. Right, and but at the same it was time, actually really controversial, remember, back during the, the Bill Clinton administration when Hillary moved the office. So traditionally, the First Lady, you know, has an office and it's in the East Wing, right? And the President's office is in the West Wing. And it's kind of like, you know, you can go over there and have your little office and do your pet projects and that's great. And, you know, it's humanitarian work or, you know, it's usually something cute like that, right? You promise to do all future episodes. Absolutely. Um, Can you promise to do all future episodes in that tone of voice? But it's often kind of portrayed that way, right? But when when Bill Clinton was in office, Hillary got into the White House and said, yeah, I'm moving my office to the West Wing. And she did. And it was really controversial. Like a lot of people were really horrified. And that's why throughout the Clinton administration, there was a lot of talk of Billary, right? Like it was like Hillary's really, you know, running the show. And a lot of that was like an issue of sexism. But a lot of it too has to do with Again, like he said, we didn't elect your spouse. We elected you. Although, to be fair, when candidates run, they do tend to bring their spouses and, you know, talk about how their spouses or their partners, it's always been spouses so far, um, how, you know, they influence them and how they talk to them. So it's not like they're an unknown quantity when we do elect a president because they do introduce their spouses usually. But that said, you know, we didn't elect that person. And, you know, when you go back to, to the French example— they had a monarchy where they had, you know, Marie Antoinette. And, like, there were kind of 
even more closely related issues of not wanting to elect a monarchy, not wanting to have a royal family. And so there is a bit of an instinctual, no, we didn't elect a king and queen here. We elected a president and, you know, your wife can can be over there. And, you know, it's— Jen, Jen, that's really important. Jen, Jen, that's really important, the thing that you were just saying about the monarchy, especially given Macron's personal— approach to being president, he, even more so than other Fifth Republic French presidents who have an exceptional amount of power, he's tried to centralize authority in uh, the president's office, proposing reforms that would shrink the uh, legislature's powers and centralize authority in the presidency, and compared himself to uh, Jupiter, the Roman version of Zeus, right? He really seems to have this expansive, almost— Almost monarchical vision. Oh, I'm literally kind of like a god. Or at least he's expressed it since <laughs> coming sense. into office. Yeah, and so when someone like that is asking for special privileges to the, for their wife, who's not elected, it comes across very differently than someone who, say, was much more willing to work with the legislature and didn't have expansive ambitions to make themselves into. Nice. You know, and I do want to say <laughs> very nicely wow. done. <laughs> very nicely done. I don't even speak French. I can at least pronounce that correctly. Full disclosure, I don't speak French. It counts. I guess because my fiance is Canadian, I've learned something. Incidentally, there's a reason why I've not said a first name and left it to you. At least you didn't call him Macaron. I screwed up again. So I do think it's important that we add before we close that it does seem that Macron, the Macron government is backing away from this proposal. So I guess on Tuesday, a government spokesperson, Christophe Castaner, Castaner, I don't know, Christophe, let's just call him Christophe. He said on Twitter uh, on Tuesday that there will not be, quote, any modification to the Constitution, any new resources, nor any remuneration, unquote, for Macron's wife, um, and that they just want to have transparency. They just want to clarify her role. So it does seem, and partly is because there was this public outcry, right? There was a change.org petition that I think last night I checked, it was at three, it was over 300,000 people. Now, to be clear, I don't know if those or that's 300,000 French people because you can just go online and sign a petition. So there's that. But it does seem that this outcry maybe has kind of resonated and he, you know, Macron has gone, eh, maybe, maybe we'll walk that back a little bit. Zach has a theory uh, of much of foreign policy that center-left, the key to a center-left revival is having good-looking center-left leaders and Justin Trudeau, everyone's favorite fuzzy lovable, panda-petting Canadian is... is no, it's, it's more specific. It's roughly 40-ish, uh-huh. 40-ish, good-looking men. And that's the really the avatars of center-left policymaking because you don't, you don't just have Macron. You don't just have Trudeau. You also have... I remember that the guy. The man who we've all forgotten, <laughs> Barack Obama. He's a perfect example of this. Remember all those many years ago where he was president? Oh, wait, no, sorry. That was, not, <laughs> that was not many years ago. But it, it's interesting also, Macron's popularity has plummeted. I mean, he took office and he had the highest popularity rating of any president in, in recent French history. He had one of the biggest electoral margins. I owed Zach not one but two drinks because he was projected to win by 15 points. I Ilke said to Zach, gamble, I'd buy him if we haven't mentioned that recently. 30, so I was Zach too. And he likes to lose to me. <laughs> yeah, that's, it is, uh, that's been an unfortunate pattern of late. <laughs> but now his popularity is plummeting. So now I will be able to potentially win a bet because if I had bet, unfortunately, that he would lose 30 points of popularity in a matter of months, I'd have won and Zach would owe me a drink. And tragically, he doesn't. With that, we will close. Thank you all for listening. I want to thank Riyad Shawi, helping to produce today. Jillian Weinberger, helping to produce. 
Peter Leonard, our friend, has disappeared to Australia. We don't know if he'll come back, but if he does, he'll be back with us in a couple of weeks. Thank you all for listening. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us on Google. You can find us on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Please subscribe, rate, review, seriously, tell friends. Go tell on and do members. this. Like it really, Just really helps. It to everyone you know to share this. So go on, on, rate and review. This. That's seriously how people will find out about us. And the last go on, thing rate and review. That's seriously. And the last thing I would just say is worldly at vox.com is the email address where you can reach us. It's been wonderful this last couple of weeks. We're getting emails from listeners who are saying, this has been something we enjoy. Can you talk about country X or topic Y? Everyone we read those emails and that helps us decide what we'll do in future episodes. So it is worldly at vox.com and know that if you do, we read them, we take them seriously and they will probably be subject to future episodes. With that, you thank you all. And we'll talk again next week. Bye. Bye.